from, uh, from two of these men. The first, and this is again from that pamphlet, Trusted Voices on Translation. The first is from a, a pastor named Andrew Fuller. Uh, Andrew Fuller is a Baptist pastor in England who in the early 1800s, late 1700s, he and a few other pastor friends sent William Carey to India. Um, they're the ones William Carey told uh, John Ryland and told Andrew Fuller that he'll go if they'll hold the ropes. And so Fuller was one of the, the men holding the ropes. And in sending Carey to India, of course, they had to think about Bible translation um, because the Bible wasn't in the language of the people in India. He says this. This is on the third page of the pamphlet. Andrew Fuller says, Allowing all due honor to the English translation of the Bible, it, must, it the English translation, must be granted to be a human performance and as such, subject to imperfection, where any passage appears to be mistranslated, it is doubtless proper for those who are well acquainted with the original languages to point it out and to offer, according to the best of their judgment, the true meaning of the Holy Spirit. Criticisms of this kind, made with modesty and judgment, and not in consequence of a preconceived system, are worthy of encouragement. So he has lots of qualifications in there talking about the proper way to address translation work and how to improve upon it. J.C. Ryle, who was also a pastor in England in the late 1800s, uh, he's the next quote down. He says, I lay no claim to the inspiration of every word in the various versions and translations of God's word. So, and again, he continues in the very next sentence to make the kind of qualification that our own statement of faith does. He says, so far as those translations and versions are faithfully and correctly done, so far they are of equal authority with the original Hebrew and Greek. We have reason to thank God that many of the translations are, in the main, faithful and accurate. His next quote there says, We have no right to expect infallibility in transcribers and copyists before the invention of printing, and I would even add after the invention of printing, because we know that there were mistakes made after the invention of printing. But, he continues, there is not a single doctrine in Scripture which would be affected or altered if all the various readings were allowed and all the disputed or doubtful words were omitted. So there again, I think both of those quotes show that as Christians, the, the differences in our Bibles are not a new phenomena, and they don't need to frighten us. We can stare these things straight in the face, just like Christians have done for hundreds and hundreds of years, and have confidence that we have God's word. And we'll look into that more in detail as we go through the class today. So let me pray, and then we'll do a brief review, and then we'll continue our study. God, we thank you that we have your word, and we thank you that you've given us so many copies of it and so many translations, even in our own language. We recognize that right now, all across the world, and even throughout history, that so many people have not had your word in their language. God, help us to appreciate what we have, and help us to uh, treasure your word. Help us to read it, and to memorize it, and to live it out. I pray that you'd help us to understand your word this morning, and that you would help us to receive it as your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to briefly review where we've been over uh, last week and then kind of leading up into this week, we've been talking about differences in our English Bibles. If you pick up any two English Bibles, uh, you may see differences. And I would even say if you pick up any uh, version of a Bible, whether it be 
the ESV or the NASB or the King James, all of those, depending on what decade you're getting it from, there might be differences between those two. So we've been talking about how to understand those differences in our English Bibles. And there's two main reasons that we have those differences. One is that the difference could be a difference in manuscripts, in the Hebrew or Greek text that the translators are working from. That is far less common, but that's what we've been talking about last week, and we'll talk about it more this week. A second reason that there could be a difference, and this is much more common, is a difference in how the translators choose to say a word or phrase in English. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that uh, later on in the class this morning. We talked about how we have thousands of copies of the Bible, but no two copies completely agree. We have well over 5,000 copies of the New Testament uh, in, uh, to greater or lesser degrees, right? Some of the Gospels, some are even just a fragment of the Gospels, or we have John's letter, or uh, Paul's letters, things like this. But no two of those copies completely agree. So everybody, all of us, we have to compare those copies to figure out which word or phrase is most likely to be what was originally written. And that discipline is called textual criticism. Now, because there are no two copies that agree, again, every translator has to do this, including uh, when the King James translators did their work. Uh, even though they didn't have as many manuscripts as we have today, they also knew about differences. I think I made this in your handout. If you want to see examples of them making these kinds of notes, you could look at Luke 17, 36, or James 2.18, where they note in the margin, and it's, it's also in my King James. It's not just the original 1611. It will say that some manuscripts don't include this verse, or some manuscripts say something different in the case of James 2.18. Uh, there are several principles used to figure out what was originally written, and it's best to take each difference on its own terms. So last time we mentioned that some of these principles are related to evaluating different patterns, and there are two main patterns or types of manuscripts when it comes to the Greek text that we have, and that is the Byzantine or majority text patterns and the Alexandrian or minority text patterns. And by and large, the King James uses those translators. What they had available to them were the Byzantine or majority text types, uh, and since the time that they did their work, several more manuscripts have been discovered of the Alexandrian or minority type. They're much older, and so a lot of translations will take those texts into consideration. So a lot of the manuscript differences that we have in our English Bibles are due to that difference. We talked through several examples of differences in our English Bible last week that come from these kinds of differences, and we also talked about some of the concerns uh, that people have when they look at these differences, right? So some people... Uh, who don't believe the Bible at all would say that because of these differences you can never know what was originally written. And we talked about how that's an unnecessary conclusion. Another concern that we talked about last week uh, related to manuscript differences uh, is what we're going to pick up this morning. We kind of finished about halfway through this point. And that concern goes like this. This is a different kind of concern. Uh, this concern says that the manuscripts preferred by modern translations were changed to diminish true doctrine or to support heresy. And so last week we gave a couple of examples from Luke 2.33 and 1 John 4.3 where some accuse modern translations of diminishing Christ's deity on the one hand or his incarnation, his humanity, on the other hand. And in both cases we observe that the near context demonstrates that those 
truths uh, that are in fact affirmed. The, the truths that some believe are being diminished are in fact affirmed, reflecting no effort to diminish true doctrine. Another common version of this kind of concern about manuscript differences is the accusation that modern translations remove words or verses from the Bible. And there are a few general ways to respond to that concern. One response is that sometimes modern translations have things that the King James doesn't have. Um, so, for example, in 1 John 3, 1, uh, the King James concludes saying that we should be called the sons of God, and then it ends there. And modern translations will usually go on and, and add, and so we are. Uh, and there are other examples of this. We'll talk about another one in just a moment. So it's not always the case that modern translations are removing something. Sometimes they include something that the King James doesn't have. But the most important point is that talk of adding or removing words or verses rightly and appropriately assumes a standard text. But then we must ask, what text is the standard? Theologically and historically, the answer is that the standard text is what was inspired, and what was inspired is what was originally written. But when some accuse modern translations of removing a word or verse, they're often assuming that the King James is the standard. Yet modern translations, the translators in, in their own writings and the prefaces to their versions, they are self-consciously trying to include all of and only what was originally written. And so when they choose not to include a verse, they're not including it only because they don't think John wrote it, for instance, or that Paul wrote it, or that God inspired it. A specific version of this concern or critique about deleting words occurs over references to Jesus, over the way that modern translations refer to Jesus. One author argues, in a cursory review of the, of the ESV, it was discovered that numerous verses were missing the term Lord, Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ, or Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, the New Testament message is surely undermined by this weakening of testimony to our Savior. Well, I've, I find that conclusion unconvincing for several reasons. One reason is that I reject the idea that shorter references to Jesus are dishonoring to him or less honoring to him than more full references to Jesus. And that's because every Bible, every Bible, including the King James, Jesus is referred to by a variety of names, some shorter and some longer. So, for instance, if you look at Romans 16, we'll get to Romans 16 eventually. Um, Romans 16 in the King James, Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ three times. But then he refers one time to Jesus Christ and one time simply to Christ. And I don't think that Paul was dishonoring Jesus by using shorter ways of referring to him. Additionally, when you consider the broader textual evidence in English Bibles, I don't think the evidence shows a widespread effort to shorten references to Jesus. James White notes the full title, Lord Jesus Christ, occurs 86 times in the King James. It is found 64 times in the New American Standard and 61 times in the New International Version. 
If the modern translations, his conclusion then, is if the modern translations were trying to hide anything, why wouldn't they exclude these other readings? And in fact, there are a number of times when modern translations have longer references to Jesus than the King James. So, for instance, I think I have a slide for this, Jude 25. In Jude 25, the King James says to the only wise God, our Savior, and the English Standard Version includes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it, it doesn't always go one direction. And I appreciate that the critic quoted above acknowledges this. He says, to be fair, it should be acknowledged that in some verses, the term Jesus or Christ was found in the ESV, while not in the King James. Well, I think that that concedes the point. Another reason I find this unconvincing is that there is another plausible explanation for these differences. Why would these differences show up in our manuscripts? The older manuscripts tend to have fewer words, and it seems plausible that over time a copyist who loved Jesus simply expanded a text that said Jesus to say Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus Christ. We do this often in our own Bible memorization and quotation, especially if the same wording was used in a near context, and that very kind of thing happens in Romans 16 if you compare the translations. And we have similar things that demonstrate this kind of change uh, that aren't related to the name Jesus Christ that I think help us understand how this could happen. So for instance, in Matthew 1, verse 6, this is the genealogy, uh, that a lot of us, uh, I think, would do well to read and think about this time of year. Uh, this genealogy in the King James, it says, Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. Whereas modern translations, like the ESV, say, Jesse, the father of David the king, so that's the same as the King James. And then the second half of the verse says, and David was the father of Solomon. All manuscripts say David the king in the first half, but the older manuscripts have simply David in the second half of the verse. And I think it would be unnecessarily cynical to conclude that modern translations are trying to diminish the kingship of David by uh, the way that they render this particular verse. I think another reasonable possibility is that a, a later scribe saw David the king in the first half of the verse and simply said it the same way in the second half of the verse. And again, this is the kind of thing that happens in other places like Romans 16. That in the end, we want to choose the text that God had originally written. So the question is not, when we look at these differences, the question is not which reading supports true doctrine in the fullest way possible. The question is what was originally written. So in sum, I think that these accusations, what we talked about last week, and then just considering these here, I don't think that these are well-founded or true ways of accounting for differences in Greek texts and English translations. So here I'll pause. This is, this is all that we'll say about uh, just kind of these concerns about manuscript differences. We'll talk about concerns about translation differences, Lord willing, in a bit, but I'll pause here for any comments or questions that you might have. Again, I'm happy to talk more about manuscript differences uh, at any time. Um, so in conclusion, when we think about, just to wrap up this section about differences due to manuscript differences, the conclusion that we should appropriately come to as 
Christians who believe that the Bible is God's word is that the biblical text is remarkably stable. We can stare this issue of differences in our texts straight in the eye and come out the other side with confidence. Christians have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Origen, back in the 200s, he knew about differences in his versions of the Old Testament, and he put together the Complutensian Polyglot. We talked about that a long time ago. But he knew about those differences, and he compared those differences. Augustine talked about differences in New Testament texts in the 400s. The King James translators in the 1600s, they knew about manuscript differences, and they talked about it. And modern translators talk about these differences today. And the consensus is that we have a high degree of confidence that we know what was originally written. B.B. Warfield, who in the late 1800s was a stalwart defender of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture against people who attacked the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture, he said the great mass of the New Testament has been translated, transmitted to us with no or next to no variations. Modern textual scholar Peter Gurry says, in fact, because scribes overall did such a faithful job, because they left us so many manuscripts, because we have careful principles for identifying scribal mistakes, our confidence in the text as we have it is remarkably high. I have many other quotes to the same effect, that, and you'll find many quotes to that effect in this pamphlet. Um, we have known, we Christians, the church, have known about differences in manuscripts for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we have confidence that we know what God has said to us, that we know God's word. So the conclusion for all of this should not be worry or fear, but confidence uh, that we have God's word. So let's talk about translation differences. So one of the reasons that our English Bibles are different is not because of a difference in the, the Greek or the Hebrew texts, but is because of different choices that translators make when they bring the Hebrew or Greek into English. And this accounts for most of the differences in our English Bibles. Most of the time, if you look at different translations and you see a difference, this is usually the reason why. And there's often more than one way to translate a word or phrase or idea from one language to another. In other words, five translators could look at the exact same Hebrew or Greek verse, and this applies not just to the Bible, this applies to all sorts of things, to translation. And so Bible translators, though, they could look at the same Hebrew or Greek verse with no manuscript variation in it and produce five different ways of bringing that into English. When I was in Greek and Hebrew class in college and seminary, I mean, all the students would get different variations of translating the text. Um, when we would work on it in class. So, for instance, the Hebrew word for word or thing is devar. It's translated by, in the King James, it is translated by 84 different English words. That is, one Hebrew word for word or thing is translated by 84 different English words in the King James. Same thing happens with the word katargeo in Greek. That word appears 27 times in the New Testament. And the King James translators translate that 18 different ways by abolish, cease, cumber, deliver, destroy, do away, become of no effect, fail, lose, bring to naught, put away, vanish away, make void, and others. Those are just some of them. We have one case in Isaiah. This is an interesting case. In Isaiah 35.10 and Isaiah 51.11. In the King James, uh, well, let me start this way. In the Hebrew, 
These verses are exactly the same. There are no differences in the Hebrew wording of these verses. But in the King James, in the English, there are a number of variations to this text. And most of them are very minor, right? Um, But you can notice the differences, right? One verse begins with and, another verse begins with therefore. That's the same Hebrew word behind it. But in English, they're using different words. They use the word ransomed in one verse and redeemed in another verse. Um, They change the order of joy and gladness. They use a different word at the end in Isaiah 35 for sighing, and then in Isaiah 51 for mourning. This is the exact same verse in Hebrew, but they're bringing it over into English differently, and that's totally fine. That is totally appropriate. The King James translators knew they were doing this. This wasn't an accident. Um, In the preface to the King James, they say, Another thing we think to admonish thee of, gentle reader, they're so kind to address us that way, that we have not tied ourselves to a uniformity of phrasing or to an identity of words or, as some, peradventure, would wish we had done. So they, and then they, they talk about why they did that. I'm not going to read that whole quote, uh, but it's uh, there for you in the preface to the King James. They talk about why they would use different English words to translate different, or to translate the same Hebrew or Greek word. And that approach is shared. The approach that the King James translators had, that same approach is shared by many modern versions. And for the most part, these choices make perfect sense to us in English, right? We, we understand, we can look at this and understand that the difference between with songs and with singing is basically the same thing, right? Like, this, we understand that these kinds of variations are not significant. But sometimes there are noticeable and relatively significant differences between how translators choose to represent the Hebrew or Greek in English, and we'll talk about some of those. I want to men- talk for a little bit about some basic principles of translation. Many differences between translation have to do with two main principles uh, in translating, and that is the principle of form, translating according to form and translating according to meaning. William Mounts, who's written Greek grammars, and he served on the translation committee for the ESV and the NIV, he describes these principles. He says that form is the principle that aims to replicate the form of the Greek and Hebrew, and only moving to meaning when translating the words doesn't make sense. So that's the principle of form, but he also talks about the principle of meaning. This principle puts the primary emphasis on the meaning of each of the original words understood in context. And invariably, Every translation is going to lean more in one way towards form or in one way towards meaning. Next week, we'll talk about more translations and what to do with them, and I'll show you a chart, Lord willing, of kind of how they tend to go. But we need to understand that no translation only ever does one thing. All translations have both of these elements, have both elements of form and meaning. So, for instance, uh, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, I'll preach from 2 John. 2 John 12, in the King James and in the ESV, both says that John wants to come to visit the people he's writing to because he wants to speak to them face to face. That is not a formal or literal translation. That is not the Greek word. There is a Greek word for face. It's prosopon. This is not that word. This literally, John is saying that he wants to speak to them mouth to mouth. Now, in English. Mouth-to-mouth refers to something else. Mouth-to-mouth does not refer to the way we like to have conversations with people. 
So, I think that the King James translators and the English Standard translators, they are both totally appropriately translating mouth-to-mouth as face-to-face. I don't think that they're up to anything nefarious. I think that this is an appropriate way to translate it based on meaning. Another example is in Romans 11.1. And this comes up many times in Romans. Uh, It comes up in Romans 3. John's already talked about this, actually. In the King James, it's rendered, God forbid. And in the ESV, it's translated, by no means. The most formal version of the way to say the Greek words is probably the New American Standard that says, may it never be. But even there, in the New American Standard, they add an exclamation point. And there are no exclamation points in Greek. There's no punctuation in Greek, as a matter of fact. Um, so even in the NASB, you know, they're, they're communicating to us in a way we understand with exclamation point. The King James choice of the words God and forbid, neither word is in the Greek text. The word God or forbid is not there. But they're simply using a cultural translation for a strong negative. And I actually think when I look at all the English ways of saying it, I actually think the King James has the best one. I think God forbid is a great, forceful way of communicating what Paul is saying. So if I had my druthers, I would go with that. Uh, I think that that is a, a great way to translate in a forceful way what the, King, what the Greek is saying. But those words, formally and literally speaking, aren't there in the Greek. If you survey English translations, you'll see that any given translation can be more formal or meaning-based in any given verse, although they usually trend towards one or the other. We'll talk more about that last, next week. Um, so here I'm going to pause, and uh, I've been talking for a little while. We'll look at some examples of translation differences next. Um, but any, any comments or questions so far? We'll look at some more examples. So, let's now what we're going to look at are examples. Again, these are not differences in manuscripts. These are differences. It's the same exact manuscript. It's the same Greek wording. These are just different ways that translators are choosing to bring this into English. Before we get to the English, though, I want to show that these kinds of changes happen within the Bible itself. And it happens when the New Testament in Greek quotes the Old Testament, okay? So, uh, the first example of this is from James 4, 6, or 1 Peter 5, 5. And before I read this, actually, I have a blank slide in here. Does anybody know, and I'll, I'll help you, does anybody know what these verses say? They say the same thing. Um, it begins with, God resisteth God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. That's right. And you're likely familiar with that wording, but you might be less familiar with what they're actually quoting. That verse they're quoting is from Proverbs 3.34. And in Proverbs 3.34, it says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. Uh, And so they're bringing, and, that, and those are both quotes from the King James, uh, so they're bringing the Hebrew of the Old Testament into Greek with different words. They're dropping the word surely. They're replacing he with God in the New Testament. Uh, the word God is not in Proverbs in Hebrew, uh, but it's being supplied in Greek in the New Testament. 
Um, and again, the King James translators are only doing that because that's what James wrote and that's what Peter wrote. Um, so when James and Peter quote Proverbs, they're translating it into Greek in their uh, quoting the Septuagint, and it's a different wording than the Hebrew. Another example of this happens um, in Matthew in the Gospels when Jesus says what the greatest commandment is. Does anybody know? Does anybody know this one? Does anybody know what is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? This thou shalt. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, I heard heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's interesting. Does anybody memorize it differently? You probably have, because that's not the only way to say it. So what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jesus says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. That's Matthew. Um, what uh, Kathy was quoting is Mark or Luke, because in Mark and Luke, Jesus says, with all thy mind and with all thy strength, or with all thy strength and with all thy mind. It's different orders of the words. But in Deuteronomy, it's different. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might, not mind. Um, now, this is not a difference in manuscripts. This is not a, a, all the manuscripts in the New Testament say mind, and all the manuscripts in the Old Testament say might. The Greek translations quoted here add mind and drop might in Matthew's version, which I think communicates that meaning appropriately, uh, I, I don't think that he's misquoting Moses. I don't think that Jesus is getting this wrong. And to be even more pointed, it's not just that I don't think that he was wrong or that it was in fact appropriate for him to say mind, we know it's appropriate because we know this is inspired. This is the Bible. There are no manuscript differences about this. This is what the text uh, says, and it's stable here. So the point of showing these examples is that even within the Bible itself, we can see differences of translation based on meaning. So that's one kind of difference uh, that we see even within the Bible itself. Coming over into English, so now we're in the English world, there are differences that... Um, you know, just in choice of how to say a word. This is an interesting one from Hebrews 10, 23. The King James says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Modern translations say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. This is not a difference of manuscript. The manuscripts are identical, and the manuscripts consistently say the word for hope. Um, the King James translators, my understanding, I did some reading about this, I think their, their thinking was that contextually the word for hope is very related to meanings for faith. Words in all languages have overlapping meaning, um, and so I think that the King James translator choice was that faith overlapped fairly well here, and so they chose to use the word faith, but this is, there is a Greek word for faith, it's pistis, this is the word elpidos, which is the word for hope. Um, so sometimes there's just differences based on context and judgment uh, that all translators have to use. They'll, they'll use different words, so sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's differences because of obscure words, uh, there's a long explanation that's fascinating about this. Uh, I'm not going to go into it, actually, just for the sake of time. Suffice it to say that in the 1600s, and the King James translators talk about this in their preface, they say that there are some words that are obscure, and it usually has to do with jewels or animals. This, in this case, it's a, it's a different word, um, that are obscure. 
and they, they say there's, there's no help from a conference of places, is the phrase they use. They, they can't look anywhere else to compare to say, how is this word used over here? Here, uh, the King James translators, this is quoting Job, says, aforetime I was as a tabret. A tabret is an old English word for tambourine, so it's a musical instrument. Today, when we look at related, they're called cognate languages, languages that are similar to Hebrew and ancient, we know now that this word means spit. Um, and so it's not referring to a musical instrument, it's referring to something quite different. And um, there's no, um, yeah, there's, there's just a, simply a development over time that we've learned more about the Hebrew language. And Job is the, we think that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So it's not surprising that there would be words in Job that are nowhere else in the Bible uh, that are hard to understand or hard to know what they are. Sometimes we also have differences in translating names. So sometimes in the King James, they'll use a name in Greek or Latin for a Hebrew name. So, for instance, if you're reading in the Gospels, Elijah is not called Elijah. He's called Elias, which is the Greek or Latin name for him. Isaiah is called Esaias in the King James. Jonah is called Jonas. Um, in Matthew 2, Jeremiah is called Jeremiah. That's his Hebrew name. In Matthew 16, he's called Jeremiah's. And in Jeremiah 27, he's called Jeremy. That's all the same Greek word. There's no difference in the Greek words there. There's just different choices of how to bring that into English. Sometimes it, it's, it's a, it can be a bit more confusing. Um, in Acts 7 and in Hebrews 4, um, the King James says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? In the ESV, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest. And you may know that the reason behind this is not because of a manuscript difference, but it is because Joshua and Jesus are the same name in Greek. Um, and it's fairly clear that from the context and from what the authors are talking about in Acts 7 and Hebrews 4, they're not talking about Jesus like Jesus Christ in the Gospels. They are talking about Joshua. And so there's a difference here, but it's not because of manuscripts. It's just a translation choice. Another difference is because of grammar. We'll come across this soon, I expect, in Romans 8. In Romans 8.26, the King James translators say, the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. But modern translations will say, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. This is the same exact Greek word. This is not a manuscript difference. The King James says itself because the Greek pronoun is neuter. Because the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, is neuter. And there's, to make it grammatically agree, they have to use a neuter pronoun, or else it would be grammatically incorrect. But lingu so linguistically speaking, there's, there's stuff going on uh, to make the grammar agree, but grammatical gender does not convey ontological gender or theological truth. So theologically speaking, the important thing to realize here is that the spirit is not an it. The spirit is a who, the spirit is a he. Uh, he is a person. So these are some examples of translation differences and some of the reasons. We could be here all day and talk about the different reasons for why there are different translation choices. I'm trying to use these ones to show that, that there are differences in our Bibles that are not due to Greek manuscripts. They're all the same, but there's just different ways of bringing those things into English. Um, We'll talk about concerns next, some concerns that people have about differences in translations. Um, but I'll pause here again briefly for any comments or questions.
Okay. Happy to talk more about any of these things uh, at any point. Um, so, some concerns about translation differences. One, we'll, I'll just mention it now, we'll talk more about it next week, is absolutizing a translation method to be only formal or only functional. We'll talk more about this next week. One that I will take some time to talk about is the concern that modern translations are making changes to hide truth or to promote heresy. And once again, I'll just point out that it, it needs to be said that when this kind of accusation is made, it, it assumes a standard. And again, it's right to have a standard. But we have to ask what the standard is. And the answer is that the standard is what God inspired, and what God inspired was what was originally written. But again, this kind of critique shifts the standard to the King James in such a way that any English words that differ from the King James constitute a change. And that's simply not the right way to think about translation differences because we're trying to look at the Greek and figure out how to bring that into English. That's why there's differences. So one critic would point to 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. Now in context here, Paul's warning about the last days, there's going to be bad people. And he's describing those bad people. In the King James, it says that these bad people will be without natural affection. And the ESV, for instance, says that they will be heartless. Now that's a translation choice. There's no difference in manuscripts, and according to the Greek lexicon, either translation is fine. The lexicon, the standard lexicon that I looked at said it could be translated hard-hearted, unfeeling, without regard for others. These all are in the ballpark. The concern that's expressed, though, by, by one person says this. It says, when the ESV tr takes the warning of 2 Timothy 3.3, that in the last days men shall be without natural affection, and waters it down to read heartless, does it matter? And then he says, the ESV rendering destroys one of the most serious warnings of God to his people as we face the last times. Now, I just, I respectfully disagree with that conclusion. If I saw one of my sons mistreating our dog, and I said, son, don't be without natural affection, I don't think that would land in the same way as if I told my son, son, don't be heartless. And, and so I just, I have a different take on how those warnings land. And in my estimation, the, the accusation that the ESV is watering down or destroying this verse is not true and unfounded. Or uh, another quick example could be John 3.16. The King James says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Ginger mentioned this several weeks ago. Uh, only begotten son. The ESV says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And one critic of the ESV says, we know that there are many sons of God in scripture, such as Adam, the angels, and Christians. With that in mind, the ESV changes John 3.16 into a lie by removing the word begotten. Now, this is not a manuscript difference, but a difference in how to translate the word monogenitos. And that is a notoriously challenging word to translate. And church, the church and Christians in the early years of the church, for the first several hundred years, wrestled over that word in particular. Some choose, some translations choose only begotten, some choose only, some choose one and only, some choose unique. Much has been written about the best way to translate this word. And I actually think the King James has a great rendering of it. I think only begotten is good and useful way of translating uh, monogenitas. But... Are translations like the ESV turning John 3.16 into a lie by not using the word begotten? I don't think so. Just this last week, 
um, a Jehovah's Witness called our church and tried to press me by arguing that because Jesus was begotten, that he was created and thus not God. And of course, I think that view is exactly wrong, right? I think that the Jehovah's Witnesses' understanding of the word begotten is wrong. I don't think that's a correct understanding of monogenitas or the theological meaning of begotten. And I, but I'm only, I'm only sharing that to show that contrary to what this particular criticism says, that the word begotten in and of itself does not ensure that Jesus is rightly known or understood. Some people, like Jehovah's Witnesses, use that word begotten and latch onto it and twist that word to say Jesus was created and not the eternal God. Um, so I'll, I'll pause here again uh, for any comments or questions. We might have time for one if you have a question or comment. Yes, Chuck. It, the word has, does not have to do uh, with sexuality in any way. You know, it, it has to do with love or feeling. There's a different word that has to do with sexuality and those issues. This is not that word. Yeah. Um, all right, so just in sum, the main reason for the differences between our English Bibles are the variety of translation choices made when bringing the Bible from Hebrew or Greek into English. That's most of the reasons for the differences. Now, then the next question is, what do we do with all these English Bibles? And that's the question that we'll think about next week. So let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that we have your sure word. We pray, Father, that this morning that you would help us to receive your word with gladness, that we would respond with rejoicing, that we would respond with humility, that we would respond with obedience. Help us to follow you uh, as you lead us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.